Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Mark 8 again. Mark 8, which Christina read for us. And as you turn there, I'm just going to say a few words about another matter. If you're a member here at um, Royal York Baptist Church, you received an email the last two weeks about a specific member in our church who is in need. And, um, and so I just want you to be aware that uh, we have an offering plate at the back there. There are some colored envelopes. And if you're a member, I want to encourage you to take that envelope envelope and to designate a certain amount of money towards the individual. You know the name of the person that I am referring to. In Romans 12, Paul says, let love be genuine. And then he unpacks several things about what, what genuine love looks like. And one of the things he says is this, contribute to the needs of the saints. That's what love looks like. That's what genuine love looks like, is that we would contribute to the needs of the saints, to our brothers and sisters. And so I want to encourage you, if you've prayerfully considered what you would give, that you would put that in the colored envelope, and all that money will go to that specific individual. If you were not aware of this, don't worry, we're going to do it again next Sunday as well. We're going to allow two Sundays for a special offering for our specific member. If you're not a member and you've been coming here um, and you would like to give to this individual, um, you can come speak to me afterwards because you don't know the person's name. I will give you the name, but I will not give you the reason um, because this is primarily a member responsibility. So, all right. Well, look at Mark chapter 8 with me. Christina read this for us and... um, I'm guessing you probably have had an experience where there was something in life <clears throat> that took you a while to grasp or understand. Um, I think you probably have had several occasions like that in life where it just seems that you have to experience the thing over and over again to fully get it. If you're married, you are probably very familiar with this. Why doesn't your spouse get it the first time when you confront them on something? And it's this long journey of apologies and forgiveness. I know when this is a silly example, when I was a kid, I had this habit of never turning the lights off in our house. So I would go from room to room and never turn off the lights when I leave. And of course, my dad would get very angry with me. And as a kid, I just didn't get it because I didn't understand really the fact that he had to pay for having the lights on. And it took me about 30 years to figure that out once when I started to have to pay for electricity. But that's how we often are as humans. Things don't get into our heads and into our hearts often the first time around. That's often how sanctification works, growing in godliness. It takes years for us to actually figure out what it means to live for Jesus. It takes years to really learn to trust Jesus, to turn to him and to have faith in him. And that's what we see here in this passage in Mark chapter 8. Despite the fact that the disciples have already seen Jesus in Mark chapter 6 feed the 5,000 with five bread and two fishes, here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus does almost the exact same miracle and we discover that the disciples still don't get it. 
See, in Mark 6, 34 to 44, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And though these stories are similar, they are actually different occasions. They're two different events in Mark's account of Jesus. And so what I want to do for these first 10 verses where Jesus feeds the 4,000 is I'm just going to highlight some of the differences and similarities and the significance of those things. So I'm not going to go into, ten, into uh, intense detail on these verses in verses 1 to 10 because we've already looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Not only that, the thrust of this chapter or these 21 verses isn't actually the feeding of the 4,000, but it's really what leads into that or, or where that leads to in verses 11 to 21, where you have Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and also his conversation with the disciples. So I'm just going to highlight some things that I think are significant in the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 8. And the first thing I want us to see is this. The two feedings, that is Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, and here the feeding of the 4,000 happened in two different regions, two different locations. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Jewish territory. Whereas here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is actually in Gentile territory. Remember, just before Mark 8, you have chapter 7, 31 through to 37, you have the, the healing of the deaf, the deaf man. And this healing took place in the Decapolis, which was Gentile territory. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days when, a, when again a great crowd had gathered. That is, Jesus is actually still in Gentile territory. He's still in this region. Now, what's significant about the fact that Jesus, one, did a miracle of feeding of the 5,000 in Jewish territory, and what's significant about the fact that now he's done it in Gentile territory? Well, when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, the main idea that we saw several weeks ago wasn't simply Jesus provides bread miraculously. No, no. Rather, the multiplication of the bread was a prefigurement of Jesus being the bread of life, who gives his body for the world that everyone who takes and eats of him will have everlasting life. And I think Mark wants to make clear with the story of the 4,000 here, that Jesus being the bread of life, the one who brings eternal life, isn't only the bread of life for the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand this as well. Remember, it's just before this miracle that you have the unclean Gentile woman begging Jesus to deliver her daughter from the demonic in chapter 7, 24 to 30. And what does Jesus say to her? Well, turn back to chapter 7 and look at verse 27. So this, this unclean Gentile woman, according to Jewish law, has come to Jesus begging Jesus to deliver her daughter from demon possession. And Jesus responds to her 
at first glance with harshness. In verse 27, he says, and he said to her, let the little children be fed first. That is Israel, that is the Jews. Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is the unclean Gentile dogs. Now, at first glance, we saw that this looks like Jesus is almost being racist. He's being harsh. But we know that he's doing this on purpose. He's trying to make a lesson to his disciples that even this unclean Gentile woman, according to Jewish law, has more faith than the Gentiles do. But here Jesus uses this phrase, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. In other words... It's not right to take the bread that I provided for the 5,000 in Israel and give it to the Gentiles. But Jesus in Mark 8 is showing it is right. It is right. See, I think this similar theme is being carried out into Mark 8. Jesus is trying to make clear that the Gentiles are a part of his plan of salvation just as the Jews are. Now, why do I think that? Well, one, as I said, he's in Gentile territory, but I think there are several other reasons, but I want to draw your attention to just one. I think there's a hint when you compare the two feedings and the number of baskets of bread that are left over. Now, we have to be careful with numbers and spiritualizing numbers, but but numbers actually do have meaning for the Jewish people. And it's interesting, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Jewish territory, how many baskets of bread are left over? Twelve. Twelve baskets, symbolizing the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus is sufficient as the bread of life for Israel. But how many baskets of bread are left over here in this story? We'll look at verse Eight. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Number seven is the number of fullness or completion. In other words, I think what Mark is trying to convey is this, is that Jesus will be sufficient not only for the tribes of Israel, but also the Gentile nations. Jesus has enough bread for both Jew and Gentile. He is the bread of life for for both Jew and Gentile. That means that every nation in this world, there is enough bread for them from Jesus. For Canadians, Jamaicans, Lebanese, Chinese, Indians, Americans, Kenyans, Ghanaians, South Africans, Filipinos, Latvians, Czech Republicans. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. (laughs) Christ is the bread of life for every nation. You know, it's interesting. We, We live in the Western world, and there's this idea that Christianity is the white man's religion. But when I look around this room, I see diversity. And what's even more interesting is that there are more Christians in China 
than in all of Europe combined. There are more Christians in Africa than in all Europe combined. The reality is, Christianity is not a white man's religion. The founder of it was Jewish. And he has come to save every, for a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and to draw them into union with God. Jesus has enough bread for both Jew and Gentile. The second thing I want us to see in these ten verses of the feeding of the 4,000 is the reason for Jesus' compassion in both stories. In chapter 6, 34 to 35, we're told that Jesus had compassion on them, and the reason was is for they were sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach them many things. And so the driving force of Jesus' compassion in Mark chapter 6 was their spiritual need. But here in Mark 8, we're told that Jesus' compassion for the crowd was primarily due to their physical need. Look at verses 2 and 3. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. You see, it's important to see this. The feeding of the 5,000, the emphasis of his compassion was spiritual. But here, the emphasis of his compassion is their physical needs. See, Jesus' compassion extends both to the spiritual and the physical. It's a strange and foreign Christianity that would say Jesus only cares about your soul. No, no, no. Jesus cares both about your spiritual needs and your physical needs. It was him who said, do not worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. For he has promised to clothe his children more so than he promises to care for the sparrow. And as Christians, we ought to reflect Jesus in this. We ought to serve Jesus by caring for both the spiritual and physical well-being of people. In Romans 15, 25 to 27, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Roman Christians and and he says this to them, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem, why? He's going to bring aid to the saints. So he's he's going to Jerusalem to care for the saints. He has some kind of resource for the saints. And we're told what? In verse 26, For Macedonia and Ikea, that is the Christians in Macedonia and Ikea, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul's going to bring this contribution that the Gentile believers put together in Macedonia and Ikea to bring and care for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he says this in verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. They were were delighted to care for the saints in Jerusalem and indeed they owe it to them. Interesting. So they were pleased to do it, but Paul says they owed it to the saints in Jerusalem. Why? Here it is. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, 
they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. In other words, if the Gentiles have become sharers in the spiritual realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like the Jew, then that also means that they also have a responsibility to care for their brothers and sisters with material blessings as well, as those who have need. Or James 2, 14-17, What good is it, my brothers, if, if some says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus cares about our physical well-being as well as our spiritual well-being. I'm not here preaching some prosperity gospel. I'm not saying Jesus promised any of us to be rich. Most of us are not. What I am saying is this. Jesus promises to care for your physical needs. And you can trust him. And I'll have more to say say on this later on. The third thing I want you to see in these ten verses is the similarity in the result of the miracle. You have 5,000 in 5,000 people in Mark chapter 6. There's five loaves of bread, and Jesus multiplies the five loaves of bread, and there are 12 baskets full left over. You have here 4,000. There are seven, uh, there's seven uh, loaves of bread, and he multiplies that so that they have seven basket, baskets full left over. And in both cases, we're told, for example, in verse 8, and they ate. And were satisfied. The people ate and were satisfied. Jesus comes to satisfy his hungry, needy sheep. And ultimately, he satisfies them by being bread for them. I said this when I preached on the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus did not primarily come in the world to give you bread but to be bread in your life. For he said, those who are hungry and thirsty, come and eat and drink from me, and I will give you eternal life. So Jesus performed this miracle. He took seven loaves, and he multiplied those seven loaves to feed 4,000 and also a few small fish. And the disciples They've been present for both of these miracles. They've seen with their very own eyes Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 with, with the very few resources that Jesus had. And the question we need to ponder is, despite them seeing both these miracles with their very own eyes, do they understand? But before we get to Jesus' interaction with the disciples, Jesus has another encounter. A not-so-pleasant encounter with his opponents. Verse 10, we're told that he and his disciples got into the boat and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha is actually, we haven't been able to find it in the, the area of Galilee. We're not sure where it is, but it's most certainly Jewish territory. For while he's there, some Pharisees approached him. As you see in verse 11, 
the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus just performed a miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, which is a reflection of the manna in Exodus, where God gave bread from heaven, a sign from heaven. But they come and they, they begin arguing with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. They come making their demands to Jesus. They come with a spirit of argumentation. And we're told that their intention was to test him. See, these men are not genuinely interested in truly learning who Jesus is. They want, by any means possible, to discredit Jesus in his, and his ministry. We've already seen this several times in Mark's Gospel. Anytime Jesus encounters the Pharisees, they are out to defy him. Now we're told they're seeking a sign from heaven. What do they mean by that? Well, for them, Jesus' miracles weren't enough. They wanted some kind of authentication, even of his miracles. Remember, these Pharisees earlier had accused Jesus of having demonic powers. To them, his miracles were the work of Satan. In other words, Jesus, your miracles aren't enough because the miracles you do are done by the power of Satan. So give us a sign from heaven. But Jesus had already given them multiple signs. And their desire for a sign from heaven is not one of genuine seeking, but of arrogance and hostility towards Jesus. They're outright testing him and defying him. Give us something grand from heaven, Jesus. Prove yourself to us. As if the Son of God needs to prove himself to any man. Jesus won't even entertain their request. For he knows the wickedness of their hearts. Look at verses 12, 13. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. We're told that he sighed deeply in his spirit. That is, he was grieved over the hardness of their hearts and the unbelief that he saw in them. He's grieved over their wickedness. But he doesn't end in grief. He then questions them and then gives them an answer to their requests. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Now, it's interesting. He's speaking to the Pharisees, but he, he's not just referring to the Pharisees in this statement. He, he's speaking of all of Israel in this moment. Why does this generation seek a sign? He indicates that this isn't just about the Pharisees, but about this generation. Those who merely wanted a sign from Jesus in his ministry in Galilee. They simply were all about his signs. But they had no faith nor love for Jesus. He's confronting the whole generation. 
In Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew 16, 4, we're told that Jesus responded to them that an evil and an adulterous generation looks for a sign. No sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah, which of course is his resurrection. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so Jesus will be in the depths of the earth three days and will rise. See, Jesus here is making a judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And because of their wickedness, because of the Pharisees' hardened hearts, Jesus will not grant them any requests because they are not genuinely seeking Jesus. Jesus said that if you seek me, you will find me. He promises that. But if you have the attitude of the Pharisees, you will not find find him. For as he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now it's difficult in the English to see just how angry Jesus was when he said that those words. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's, it's, more, it's, it's as though he's saying, if this generation is given a sign, may God punish me or may I die. You see, the the construction is characteristic of a Hebrew oath, and it carries with it intense emotion. I will not give you a sign, and if I do, may God judge me. Jesus is outraged by their hardness of heart and their unbelief, and he will not entertain such wickedness. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Human beings have always been human beings. And this same wicked, unbelieving spirit is prevalent even today. It was prevalent at one point in all of our lives before Jesus saved us. You see, you may not be a religious Pharisee, but you're just as hostile to Jesus and his claims as they were. You demand a sign. But with such an attitude of arrogance, know that Jesus will not grant such a request. See, a sign won't change your heart. Just as so many of Jesus' miracles didn't change the hearts of the Pharisees. Your problem isn't the need for a sign. The problem is you have an evil and adulterous heart, an unbelieving heart. And you need to turn to Jesus, humble yourself and repent and trust in Him. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, that is, the person who does not have the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to Him, and He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The, The person who is hardened towards Jesus Christ does not accept the things of Jesus Christ. That's why the Pharisees, though they saw Jesus' miracle over and over and over and over again, they still did not believe because they did not have the Spirit of God. Jesus will not entertain such hardened wickedness. And this is why in verse 13 we're told, He left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. He literally left them. 
But this statement conveys a deeper reality. They believed his works were the work of demons. They came and tested him, demanding a sign. And Jesus turns away from them and leaves them. His patience has run out. They had been given opportunity after opportunity, but not anymore. See, friends, Jesus at some point will turn from you and will sail the other way. There comes a time where he will give no more signs, no more help in understanding. See, the wicked do not have forever to respond to God's kindness and mercy. Friend, you don't have forever to respond to God's kindness and mercy. So don't delay in coming to Jesus. So Jesus has this hostile encounter with the Pharisees. He then leaves and gets into the boat and he goes to the other side. But in verses 14 to 21, we're brought into a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples while in the boat. In verse 14, we're we're told that they had forgotten to bring bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. And in the midst of this situation, Jesus cautions them in verse 15. What does he say? Look at verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven was often a a scriptural symbol for evil and corruption. And so Jesus was warning them about the evil, corrupt teaching of the Pharisees and the evil, corrupt power of Herod the Great. And it's in this moment you see just how lost and confused the disciples are, like, like me with the light bulb. Though they're not hostile to Jesus, like the Pharisees were, the disciples still display unbelief and a sense of dullness when it comes to Jesus and his works. As we're told in verse 16, after Jesus warns them, this is what we read in verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus is warning them about spiritual realities and they're in the boat arguing over the fact that they have no bread. They've literally seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and 4,000 people with seven loaves and here they are in the boat worried about the fact that they only have one loaf. And Jesus sees this. He sees their spiritual dullness and he pastorally calls them out. And he does so with several penetrating questions. Look at verses 17 through 20. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Weren't you just there when I read the four, fed the 4,000? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Of course, when Jesus does this, 
He's quoting from the Old Testament where this comes up several times because though Israel had eyes and ears, they could not actually see and hear from God because of the hardness of their hearts. Do you not see and having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And surprisingly, they said to him, 12. They're aware of it. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. You see, despite being with Jesus and seeing all of his miracles, despite being his followers, the disciples still showed unbelief. They still showed hardness of heart, a sense of dullness to the spiritual reality of Jesus. There was a forgetfulness to them. And isn't it interesting that the most repeated command in all of the Bible is remember. Remember, remember what God has done. They had not discerned all that Jesus had intended them, intended for them to discern. And brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, you and I, we too are capable of being just as dull as the disciples were. How many times does God over and over again show his faithfulness to us and we still respond in doubt and unbelief? We don't remember. We're still concerned where the bread is going to come from because ultimately we still struggle to truly trust God the way we ought. And our lack of trust often leads to quarreling amongst ourselves, just as the disciples began arguing with one another about having only one loaf of bread. See, one of the most important things you can do in your walk with Jesus Christ is to remember, to be intentional with remembering all the ways that God has provided for you, all the ways that God has showed himself faithful to you. Now, after Jesus rebukes them with several penetrating questions, he then asks them one final question in verse 21. And this final question isn't really a, a continuation of the rebuke. It's, it's more he's, he's searching them out and he's appealing to them as he says in verse 21. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now that I've reminded you of how I multiplied the bread and, and, and fed the 5,000 and then I multiplied the bread here and, and, and fed the 4,000, do you not understand who I am? For if you did, you wouldn't be sitting in this boat worried about not having enough bread. And maybe some of us this morning are like the 12 in this story. You're a follower of Jesus but your life seem to in, seems to indicate that you truly don't understand. You see, friends, one of the signs of what I would call spiritual immaturity is a constant worry about material provision. You're anxious about where bread is going to come from, 
forgetting that Jesus multiplied five loaves and fed over 5,000. But here's the reality. This immaturity ultimately rests in a lack of understanding in who Jesus is. The the disciples don't fully get that Jesus is the bread of life. Remember, just before chapter 8 begins, Jesus heals a deaf man. And just after this encounter that Jesus has, he heals a blind man. And right after that, it's then when the disciples confess that Jesus is the Christ. Mark's being intentional here. The disciples at this moment in time have this deafness to them and this blindness to them. But these two miracles that are shaped around this encounter that Jesus has with them is pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to give them understanding because he's committed to them because they are his. See, it's from this point on in the narrative that Jesus will primarily begin to focus his attention on the disciples as he begins to make his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and he will die for the sins of the world. See, the Pharisees, they were hostile to Jesus. The disciples were dull. dull. But Jesus' response to each group was different. You see, to the one, he refuses to even engage them. And to the other, he rebukes them because he's committed to helping them understand. And if we are one of his disciples, despite all our deafness, all our dullness, all our unbelief, know this. Jesus is committed to helping you understand. He's committed to making himself more known to you as he will with the disciples in the coming and following chapters. But if you harden your hearts like that of the Pharisees, he will in time turn from you and go to the other side. But if you will but follow him, yes, he may rebuke you, but he rebukes you so that your faith will deepen and you will have a clearer understanding of him, which is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. So brothers and sisters, remember what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would deepen our faith by the Spirit of God. That we would truly have understanding, that you would soften the hardness of our hearts. That we would feed upon your word Believe it, remember it, and live by it. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.